Simpson gets a screen from Amori. Works around it to the left. Pass it right, McConnell, a three to tie. Good for Caleb McConnell. And Rutgers has fought back from 19 down and has tied this game at 54. Simpson takes it across midcourt, gets a screen from Amori. Rolls right, drives past the defense and lays it in. And a foul was called. Derek Simpson with a chance at a three-point play to put Rutgers in front. I didn't know Derek was a freshman tonight, but uh, man, but Derek was awesome tonight, man. We got him going. Uh, we found a hot hand, and um, it just happened to be Derek. Derek got downhill and just created plays, and um, he just made it happen as well. So that's something that Derek has been doing all season, and, and uh, it was just a matter of time. He just blew right past Lundy, who picks up the foul. And boy, has Simpson been phenomenal today, now with 15 points. He certainly was was ready, and, and I liked you know, his approach today, the swagger he had, and going downhill and making some real big plays for us. You heard the call on Rutgers Radio Network by Jerry Recco. And in between, you heard head coach Steve Peichel and senior Caleb McConnell. Their post-game remarks on Rutgers' stunning win over Penn State and Happy Valley. The Scarlet Knights overcame a 19-point second-half deficit, their biggest comeback in 27 years. You have to go back to 1996 when Rutgers overcame a bigger deficit, a 20-point deficit, to win at Pitt. Hello, everyone. I'm Brian DiNovellis, and that's where we begin. What a comeback by Rutgers in a game they had to have. The Scarlet Knights had been reeling at the wrong time. They had lost four of five and in danger of falling back to the dreaded NCAA tournament bubble. Think about this. If Penn State had won this game in the projected seedings, Penn State might have overtaken Rutgers. And who would have thought that several weeks ago when Rutgers was looking at a four or five seed? Instead, Derek Simpson saved the day with a performance of the ages as he tied his career high with 16 points. A freshman getting it done for Rutgers in their biggest game of the year. And the man who had the front row seat to this historic comeback is Rutgers play-by-play announcer Jerry Recco. Jerry, good to talk to you again. What's up, Ryan? How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, what, what a crazy scene it must have been. Crazy atmosphere. I mean, Jerry, the way Rutgers started this game, they couldn't throw the ball in the ocean. They they couldn't defend. I mean, what are you thinking in the first, you know, five, ten minutes of this game? You know, there was a play under the basket in the first half where you kind of felt like, all right, this is not going to be their night. And I think, if I remember correctly, Paul Mulcahy got an offensive rebound and he was under the basket and kind of spun one of those little reverses uh, that he would put in, I would think, 98 out of 100 times. And it just spun out. And I remember looking at Austin Johnson and saying, oh, like uh, in the break, like this is this feels like just one of those nights where they are going to struggle because you had, you know, they got out to that 5-2 lead and then there was the big run by Penn State. And you're kind of, you're looking up and while Pickett wasn't going off, you had a big game at the time from Winter who had hit a couple of threes and Rutgers was having trouble scoring. And so, yeah, it's fair to say that uh, at that point, midway through that first half, I think, I think with five minutes to go in the first half, Rutgers only had nine points. And you were 100% thinking this is going to be one of those tough nights in a very tough building to play in. Yeah. And, and Jerry, how do you describe what happened, this historic comeback, and, you know, what you witnessed? 
Resiliency. Uh, number one, resiliency. Number two, good substitutions. I do think when you look at, um, you know, matchups are everything in college basketball. You see how Rutgers always plays Purdue tough. You see how Iowa always gives gives Rutgers trouble. Um, and I don't know if that's, you know, program versus program or it's player versus player. For whatever reason, uh, Rutgers was struggling to score Sunday, and the insertion of Derek Simpson just breathed life into that offense that needed it really badly. You said, too, again, Austin, during one of the breaks when he subbed in, and, you know, they had gotten that 19-point deficit down to 10 right before the half. I said it felt like he had an extra gear, and he was exactly what they needed at that time. And then, you know, Penn State comes out and they score the first nine of the second half, and you're thinking, eh, okay, well, maybe not. It's back to 19, and you kind of felt like Penn State weathered the storm, but it was Simpson that really um, gave them everything they needed, and he was the one that could score. So that, to me, is obviously, I'm not breaking down any new news here. That clearly was the difference. Oh, my gosh, yes. And and you can go through Derek Simpson game by game this season, and it is a, a typical year for a freshman Right. You, you have fifth year, sixth year, in one case, seventh year seniors. Right. You have men playing amongst boys and freshmen during this covid era. Jerry have to buy their time. And he's had some big moments this year. Right. He's had he's had some big moments. He's had some trying moments. I mean, the Indiana game, the first game, he was brilliant. Uh, Nebraska. But he's also struggled against Seton Hall, Michigan, teams like that. So how happy are you for this kid? And and it couldn't have come at a, at a better time for Rutgers. Oh, it's funny you say that, too, about the seventh-year player, because I couldn't believe when you're doing the prep for the game, <laughs> when I'm looking at uh, the kid, uh, what was his name, Hen, Yes. I see his freshman year at Cal Davis, I think it was, was in 2016. And I'm like, that can't be right. And then I'm looking at 2016 is at one school. Then he's at another school. Then he red shirts or injured. And then he's at another school. It's like, my God, this guy, you've got 19-year-olds in the NBA. This guy is a man. <laughs> right. And so, yes, you got you got the Derek Simpson there, 18 years old, 19 years old, playing against, not that they were going up against one another, but you get the point. It is goofy, and it takes time. And it seems like, could be wrong, I will find out, but it seems like to me he has gotten over that freshman hump of the length of the season that he probably wasn't used to from his high school days. And he seems like he is geared up and ready to go for the stretch run. Yeah, they could really use him, right? Mawat Mag being out. Uh, we've seen the emergence of Oscar Palmquist, who didn't play a second in January. So guys like this, you know, their number's being called. And and to Peichel's credit, to their credit, they're ready when the bell rings, Jerry. He doesn't waver. He really doesn't. I mean, I talk to him a lot. Obviously, I get to talk to him um, before and after every game, sometimes on the bus at the hotel. I mean, when he tells you how much he enjoys this team, how much faith he has in this team, it's not coach speak. Like, he means it. And you get to watch him at shoot-around. This team has fun together. They work well together. Um, and he is front and foremost the, the, the reason why. You mentioned Palmquist, you know, if not for, and I think these three-pointers get lost because there was so much from Simpson at the end of this game, if at, I, and I don't remember the score, but after Penn State had gone back up by 19 early in that second half, there was a, I thought, a breaking point that Rutgers could have been done, and Palmquist didn't make one. He made two big threes, and the second one, if I remember correctly, got the game back to within 10 with plenty of time to go. And Austin always says, and Joe Boylan used to always say, anytime you see a game within 10, 
for it just feels different. And they got within ten, and from that point forward, I think. I think Penn State only made one or two more field goals at that point. And what I liked about the comeback was it was slow, it was methodical, and it was like at the five-minute mark, they're down by five. That's like any basketball game anywhere. And that team is a veteran group, and they knew that they were had a chance, I should say, to go accomplish something cool, and they did. Well said, because I was like you, like a lot of Rutgers fans, in the beginning, uh, you know, we thought, oh, my God, you know, Rutgers couldn't be more Awful, right, in that game. But yet, they turn it around, and Penn St- as bad as Rutgers was in the first half, Penn State might have been worse in the second half, Jerry. You threw out a number there. I have it right here. The final 9 minutes and 16 seconds, Penn State scored three free throws. They had no field goals. Right. And in the final 17 minutes of that game, when Rutgers was down 19 with 17 minutes to go, Penn State shoots three for 22 with seven turnovers. I mean, you talk about flipping a switch defensively and offensively for Rutgers. They did it. We don't know how they did it, but these things happen in sports, and that's what makes it so great. So two things. Number one, um, look at the job they did on Jalen Pickett. Um, He had 11 points at halftime, and I believe he was five of eight shooting at halftime. He finished five of nine and played almost the entire game, which means they did an unbelievable job of getting the ball or keeping the ball out of his hands and not creating or allowing him to create any space to get shots up. So that's number one. Number two, Seth Lundy had a miserable day. He was one of 15 or one of 16 from the floor. He just had one of those days. And the one thing I will tell you that drives me absolutely bonkers from fans of any program, any professional team, um, doesn't matter. It could be high school, college, pros, is when, and we all do it, so I'm not absolving myself of this. We all do it. <laughs> when we say the team was terrible and not ready to go at the outset because there's a big difference of not being prepared and simply not making shots. And when I see guys that are in position with wide-open attempts and they miss, that is a prepared team. That means the scout was proper. They put the kids in the proper position. At the, at the end of the day, it's still 18 to 22-year-olds that are going to miss shots, and sometimes the missed shots make you look worse than the effort you're actually putting out. And I actually thought that was the case in the first 10 minutes. I thought they played hard. I just thought they couldn't score in the first 15 minutes of that game. Excellent point. And, and you know, we could even go into other areas about, you know, the, the rigors of Big Ten travel and, and you know, these student-athletes who, right, they, they're, they're on the road and they get back you know, from a flight at 4 a.m. and they have to go to class yeah. and then they have shoot around and practice and right back at it. It, it can be draining. And uh, we put we think they're professionals, but they're not, Jerry. I have never seen a Steve Peichel team uh, give less than 100 percent effort out there. You can fault their shooting, but you can never fault their effort. Yeah, it's, it's very rare um, to me that uh, they don't give effort. And I think it happens. And it's not even that they don't give effort. Some of them are just dog tired. And you are right. I mean, I'm with these two. I'm with them, obviously, everywhere. You're talking about flights in the middle of the night. Um, and I know it's better than having to wait and fly out the next day. Uh, there's no question about it because they would prefer to be home. Um, but the one thing that surprised me, I guess, to a certain extent is I thought – you know, kind of like everybody. I thought big programs, I didn't think the kids went to school. I thought that the kids were there to play and that they rarely went to class. I will tell you that 
if you don't go to class, you ain't playing on this team. I mean, it is so important uh, to Steve Peichel that these kids get the degree the right way that they go to class, and they do. And then Randy Larson, who does an unreal job with them on the road when they have assignments due, like we will see them have study, you know, after team meal at 10 p.m. the night before a game because they got to get their work done. It is actually a, a very big point of emphasis. If you're going to play at Rutgers, you are going to class. And it is. It's, it's a lot. They, they, are, they are viewed by, I think, many of the fans and alums as pros. And at the end of the day, they are still going to class. And it's, it's a lot. It is a lot. Amen. And you look at what Steve Peichel has done with this program. Uh, four straight years of 10 wins or more in the Big Ten, when for the first five years, you could add up their, their wins collectively and barely get to 10. They were, they were in the basement. They were the laughing stock. And now they are one of the top, you know, certainly one of the top four or five programs in the Big Ten, right there with Indiana and Michigan State and, and the best of them. And there's no denying that, Jerry. Uh, no, and it's amazing what winning does because expectations have risen, and that is a great thing. I mean, and it comes with the territory because seven years ago there were no expectations. I remember when I took the job um, in the first year, I, I never had a doubt with Steve Michael. I saw him from afar when I was at Columbia, and I watched him build a thing at Stony Brook, and I kind of knew, um, at least had a really good feel, that he was going to be successful here. Now, to what degree, didn't know. Still don't know. I mean, who knows if this team will be an NCAA championship team this year, next year, the year after. You know, that's still to be written. But I knew that he would make them a good program. And they've been, to me, I think they've exceeded some expectations. But the point is, when I first started on the job, um, the idea of just being competitive was first and foremost because they weren't prior to that. And so watching it start from year one, and then the expectation was not to be competitive but win at home. And then it was, all right, well, we can win at home. Can we start winning on the road maybe? And then the road wins began. And now it's uh, not just get in the NCAA tournament, can win some games. I mean, it's, it is fascinating being around it and seeing the build and seeing the expectations build as well. Yeah, fantastic. They they have four Big Ten road wins this year, and they can get number five at Minnesota. Listen, I know they're at the bottom of the Big Ten. I know they're one in 16 in conference, but it's still a road win. And to get to five Big Ten road wins, not many teams could say that if they can get the job done at Minnesota, Jerry. Yeah, and nothing's easy. I mean, you look at, and I know Ohio State's probably a better team, but you look at what Ohio State did to Illinois over the weekend. I mean, it is. It's hard. It is really hard winning on the road. They've done a good job of it so far, um, having won the handful that they have. I agree with you. This is not an easy – part of it being not an easy place to play is the environment's not going to be great because they're not a good team. You've got to create your own energy. And at the end of the day, while Minnesota hasn't been very good, they still have good players. So you can't go in there with the mindset that they're just going to hand it over to you because that's not going to be the case. Right, and this team, for some reason, just seems to be playing their best basketball on the road, which, you know, for years, for years, we said Rutgers was awful on the road. They've kind of flipped the switch in some ways this year. Yeah, they make big shots. Um, Wisconsin was great. Uh, They defended late. They defended late um, against Penn State. They made big shots late against Penn State. Um, So, I mean, no bigger shot than than Cam Spencer at Purdue. Right. So they've been, they've been very good on the road, aside from, you know, aside from a game here or there, they've been really good away from from Jersey Mike's, and uh, I expect nothing different on Thursday night. And, Jerry, last question before I let you go. There's a little controversy after the game, uh, a letter written to the Penn State fans 
regarding, uh, you know, maybe some possible racist comments, uh, you know, getting on the Rutgers players. They're right behind the bench, which is odd in an arena. All these students right behind the benches. You know, do you have any say about this or, or what you might have uh, heard or seen? Well, no. At Penn State, we're in a suite calling the game. The media, we're not at the, we're not on the court like we are in other places. Matter of fact, those court spots for us are dwindling. There's only a handful of arenas we get to call the game courtside now. But I will tell you this: that sitting courtside at Illinois, sitting courtside as we have in years past at Michigan State, though not this year, um, Northwestern. There are all these different places. The behavior and language is an atrocity. And I'm not even saying it doesn't happen at Rutgers. I don't know. My guess is kids are kids, fans are fans, and it is it is so far out of control, and I don't know how it stops, that I think your head would spin if you heard some of the things. I will tell you with Illinois, the things that they were yelling at Peichel, at Mulcahy, or, and, and I don't know why. Sometimes I hear it, sometimes I don't. I hear it loud and clear this year at Champaign. <laughs> it was head-turning. And there, the fans aren't right behind the bench, but they're sort of right behind the bench. They're a little bit further away than Penn State, but only by maybe seven or eight feet, I would say. It is, I, 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 there's not even a word for it. It is just the behavior is terrible. Um, and for some reason, we as a society think it's okay that we pay our money and we can say whatever the hell we want to whoever we want, and yet if you would say some of the things they say to these kids in the parking lot, they would get their head knocked off. It's it's bizarre, and I I don't know that it ever changes anytime soon. Yeah, and it's a wonder. You know, they're human, and of course they're going to say something back. So, you know you know how you do it? You know how you fix it? You, you get an official over there, you get security uh, in that area, and kind of police it uh, before it gets out of hand. Jerry? Yeah, pretty much. I was, I was impressed, though, that the Penn State, who, you know, whatever head of that department was that they sent that letter out and i don't know if that should have gotten out publicly but that to me showed me something that they were embarrassed by it as well and that's not a bad thing right right and hopefully in some ways uh it has to start with something like that and hopefully it does improve jerry great job as always man it's great catching up with you and uh thanks for your time you can catch jerry of course on the fan weekday mornings boomer and geo and you still doing the warm-up show with al i don't get up that early jerry (laughs) every every morning 5 a.m nice so you can catch him at 5 a.m if you're up as well with al jerry thanks brother we'll talk to you soon you got it bright thank you all right the great jerry recco does a fantastic job i love listening to his updates on the fan weekday mornings Uh, he always pulls some great sound and you know what could be a a two three minute update turns into a, a 12 minute update with like a comedy routine, and, and it's a great way to drive it in the morning. I love listening to those guys, and uh, check them out as well. And uh, you can, of course, catch Jerry doing play-by-play for Rutgers Radio. Two final regular season games at Minnesota, and then home to Northwestern, which will be a big one. Northwestern trying to fight for second place in the Big Ten. They have a lot to play for. Uh, Chris Collins has that team in the top 25 again. So no gimmies. Just because Rutgers is at home, there are no gimmies. As Rutgers tries to get into the top six or seven in the Big Ten standings over the final week or so. All right, let's go around the tri-state. And we have to talk about UConn because the Huskies are back. They've won three straight and six of seven. I was at the Garden on Saturday. They really controlled this game from start to finish. And it was exactly as I thought. It felt like stores south 
at Madison Square Garden. St. John's such a proud, rich tradition. There's no way around it, all right? There were St. John's fans there. Of course, they're proud, but UConn fans took over that upper deck. They were scattered around the lower bowl as well. Official attendance was a little over 12,000, and I'm telling you, I'm telling you, more than half were UConn fans. I would put it at, you know, 7,000 UConn fans and 5,000 St. John's fans. There's no way around it. That crowd was loud. They were energetic. And if I'm a St. John's fan looking around there, I'm hating life. This other team coming into your building and taking over the arena, credit to UConn fans. They love hopping on the train in their cars and coming down from Connecticut. It's an easy get. And, and they helped UConn win that game. There is no doubt. I saw in the first three minutes of that game, uh, I think it was Hawkins hit a couple of threes early on. He certainly hit one three. And I looked over at Dan Hurley at the bench and he's waving his arms, <laughs> waving his arms like he's at the XL Center, you know, inciting the UConn fans. Hawkins was brilliant as always with 20 points. And, you know, he's headed for first team all Big East. But the depth of UConn was the story of this game. 32 points off the bench on a night when their probable freshman of the year, Alex Caravan, struggled mightily. He had four fouls. He had more points than fouls. Four fouls, two points. The bench was huge with 32 points. Joey Calcaterra, Joey California had his best game in a UConn uniform, tying his season high with 15 points. He had three threes. Donovan Klingen, who's had an up-and-down freshman year, was was huge, tying his career high with five blocks, nine points, and six rebounds. Here's what Dan Hurley had to say after the game about his bench. Obviously, it's great to see Joey get going again. You know, hopefully, you know, this is a, you know, a springboard for Joey to kind of get that, get a little bit of swagger back, uh, get some of the magic and the mojo. But, you know, like, like when Donovan, you know, does what he did today and you get 27, I mean, from center today, we, we got 27, 15, and six blocks from center. It's devastating to the opponent. As good as Soriano is, you know, it just, uh, it's such an imbalance. And that that's really was the formula, you know, but we, we just need to get, you know, like Naheem, what is it? Naheem scores eight or more with 10 and 0 now. You know, we, we get some scoring punch with what Jordan's doing. Andre's now figured out how to play against people that are, Obviously, playing him a little bit soft, he's solved that puzzle. Um, and, you know, we're formidable. Yeah, Hurley's right. I mean, when the bench plays like that, UConn is playing like it did in November and December when they had that forgettable January. Uh, they're back. This team has won three straight, they've won six of seven. They are firmly locked into fifth place, a top 25 team. Now they have to win some games in the postseason, right? They, they have to get to that second weekend for Hurley to justify what he's doing there. But let's get back to the crowd for a second because this atmosphere, don't think for a second that UConn didn't feed off of it. Don't think for a second that UConn wasn't energized by that UConn crowd. And don't think for a second that this wasn't a prelude to what's going to happen next week at the Big East Tournament. When UConn plays, that arena is filled. 
and several thousand UConn fans will be in that building when they're matched up in that 5-4 matchup. And Hurley talked about that crowd and a precursor of things to come. We prepared them for it. I think I told them last night it was going to be like a maybe like a 70-30 split today. Um, I'm not sure how accurate that is. I, I did see a lot of red in there, uh, but I did see a lot of blue. Um, going back to my seat in all days, I remember pulling into Continental uh, and seeing those UConn, like the buses of UConn fans that would travel in. So, you know, I think uh, you know, UConn travels, you know, um, and when you go play, uh, it, it certainly was a big advantage for us, I think, in the, in the game today. Yeah, home game indeed for UConn. Two games remaining, home to DePaul and at Villanova. At Villanova, who would have thought that a month or two ago, that that game would have significant meaning in the Big East Conference? Could it be a preview? Am I crazy to think that that could be a preview of the Big East final? Villanova is going to get that six or seven seed. That game against Seton Hall on Tuesday will likely decide sixth place in the Big East Conference. Villanova is red hot. They've won five of six. No one wants to play Villanova in that Big East tournament. If they're a six or seven seed and they're playing Xavier or Providence or Creighton in that 3-6, 2-7 game, are you telling me that Villanova can't win that game? Are you telling me that Villanova can't win three games or four games and get to a Big East championship? Because if you're saying they can't, then you haven't been paying attention. I was speaking with the head of Big East Media Relations, John Paquette, who goes way back, way back to his days at Seton Hall. And John is Mr. Big East, right? He brought up a great point. I was speaking to him at halftime of the St. John's UConn game on Saturday at MSG. And we were talking about, you know, that quarterfinal, that Thursday of the Big East tournament. Every single one of those games is going to be must watch. And you're talking about five ranked Big East teams likely playing in those quarterfinals. And one of those five teams won't make it to the semifinals on Friday night. How many conferences can claim that? I'll answer it for you. Only one other conference, the Big 12. They have five ranked teams in the top 25 like the Big East. One of those teams won't be going to the semifinals on Friday. That Thursday and Friday of the Big East tournament. I can't wait for those games. That is going to be awesome. A couple of other notes around the Tri-State before we say goodbye that I want to get to. Congratulations to Hofstra for winning the CAA, the Colonial Athletic Association, regular season title. They are the hottest team in the Tri-State. Winners of 11 straight heading into their conference tournament. They are the one seed, and they likely have the Metropolitan Coach of the Year in Speedy Claxton and the Player of the Year, the Haggerty Award in the metropolitan area for Aaron Estrada. And if Speedy Claxton doesn't get the Coach of the Year, I'll tell you who's going to get it. Keith Ergo from Fordham. Because what a story that is unraveling in the Bronx this year. Ergo, 
took over for Kyle Neptune at the last second when Jay Wright retired and Neptune was just finishing up his first year at Fordham and about to enter his second year, he goes to Nova. The players behind the scenes were pushing hard for Keith Ergo. And Fordham was doing a national search as they should. The players pushed hard. The players won. And the players were spot on. Ergo is going to be the coach of the year in the Atlantic 10. This is a team that was predicted 11th. And if they win their final two games against George Mason and Duquesne, Fordham will finish second in the conference what a story that is unraveling there. They've won 23 games, the most they've won since 1991. And they've won 11 games in the A-10 with two to go, the most they've ever won in the Atlantic 10. Nobody wanted this job. Keith Ergo has taken it. He has installed and instilled a personality, a defensive first mindset that is working to a T. His players have bought in. And boy, oh boy, are they doing great things at Rose Thrill, not Rose Hill, Rose Thrill in the Bronx. Thanks for listening, everyone. My name is Brian Dinavellis. As always, spread the message of the Tri-State College Basketball Podcast. Please share it with your friends. Tell them to download it. And give us a review, a rating on wherever you catch the Tri-State College Basketball Podcast. Spotify, Apple, you name it. I appreciate you listening. Until next time, my name is Brian Dinovellis. Enjoy the games. So long.